Hey, Five Oaks family. I've recorded this sermon because I was exposed to someone with COVID six days after my second COVID shot, which means I was eight days short of full immunity. So I'm in quarantine at best until Monday, following normal procedures. I have no symptoms so far, and hopefully my Friday test will be negative. But we all know this drill, right? So uh, I had to preach like this for months. So please open your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3 and keep it open. We're in the fifth week of a series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be doing four series on Romans before we're done. And this particular series covers the first four chapters, and we've called it the Gospel Journey Back to God. Now today, we're going to look at this question, how and why the death of Jesus is the culmination of God's gospel rescue story. So before we jump into the Bible, before we jump into the sermon, let's pray and ask God the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to our hearts and to our minds. And this prayer is based on Psalm 119. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. When we can't see and when we aren't sure where to step or how to walk, we look to you. We need your direction. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we look to your word. Open our eyes and guide our steps. Light the way and lead us to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's hear the scripture read by one of our five ochres. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This series is about the gospel journey back to God. So uh, one of the questions that we've been asking is, what is the gospel and what is the journey? Because Paul lays that out for us in these chapters. First, the gospel. The gospel is more than a description or the doctrine of salvation. The gospel is the story. It's a story about God seeking to renew and restore his entire creation after we, humanity, the ones made in his image and tasked with managing his creation, after we've rejected our creator and alienated ourselves from him. What makes it so tragic is that our creator designed us to live in love and harmony with him and with each other. But our rebellion from him, our turning away from him, disjointed the entire creation. So what's the journey? Well, as we've said, the journey back to God is one step, a step of faith in what God has made possible through Christ. But what makes that step possible? Uh, the answer is the cross. It's Jesus on the cross, Jesus' death. But we still may say, why? Why did Jesus have to die to make faith the one step necessary to make us right with God? Well, Jesus died to make us right with God because of God's justice and his gracious love. Romans 1 through 4 tells us the story of God's justice and his gracious love. 
which he demonstrated in the death of Jesus on the cross. It's a story that explains why the gospel, which is God's rescue story, why the gospel and faith are necessary. Today's passage is the crescendo and culmination of that story. So we're going to look at this passage in light of that storyline. There are so many big ideas and so many individual pieces of gold in this passage that could be explored, and we will explore them, but we'll explore them in light of this big picture that God is unfolding for us, this story of the gospel, the story of God's rescue. So let's look at how and why the death of Jesus is the culmination of God's gospel rescue story. Now, before I start, it's important to note that the culmination of the story is more than the death of Jesus. Last week, I talked about how repentance and faith in Scripture are actually two sides of the same coin. Both aren't always mentioned, but both are almost always assumed when only one is mentioned. You can't have faith without repentance. And, you, and if you have repentance without faith, it's actually incomplete at least from a biblical standpoint. The same goes for the cross and the resurrection. This, pa- this passage is all about the cross, but the resurrection is never out of view, and it's always assumed. All you have to do is look at the definition of the gospel in the opening verses of Romans, and you see no mention of the cross, and he only mentions the resurrection. Yet, when he gets to this point of the story, In Romans 3, it's all about the death of Christ. In in his first letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, in the opening chapters, Paul says this. He says, I came to you with one message only, the message of the cross. But then toward the end of the letter, he says, he brought the message of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Two sides of the same coin. But here, in chapter 3, He explores the cross side of the coin in detail and in light of the story that he's telling. Here's the first movement of the story as Paul tells it in Romans 1 through 4. Humanity, that includes you and me, has proved unwilling and incapable of living rightly and of being right with God and others and with creation. That's what a great part of Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20 is about. It's a retelling of what happens in Genesis 3, right there at the beginning of the story, and the aftermath of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have taken and eaten the fruit from the tree that God expressly commanded them not to eat from. In Paul's retelling or exposition of that, he says that humanity, that includes you and me, suppresses the truth about God by doing evil, even though we have a knowledge of God. We have a knowledge also of God's goodness, and we have a knowledge of God's good way. It's innate in us. But we suppress the truth, and we fail to worship and follow God. We worship and follow what God created instead of worshiping the Creator. So this story starts with this. Humanity proved unwilling and incapable of living rightly. So God promised to rescue humanity through one man and his descendants. But they failed to live rightly and to be right with God, others, and creation. Now, the man that we're talking about was named Abraham. 
And he's introduced in the story of God in Genesis 11. So very, very close to the front of the story. And God's plan is introduced in the opening verses of Genesis 12. God, the plan is this, God will bless Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrew nation, and they in turn will bless the world. He chooses the Jewish nation for a missionary purpose. They are the key to his rescue plan for the world and all of creation. So Genesis 12 puts it this way. The Lord God had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the subtext or the background to the story Paul tells beginning with Romans 2.17. He explains how in spite of showing them exactly how to live through the Torah, which contained their origin story and uh, all the laws that they would live by, in spite of this, they failed to live rightly, to live in the way that God intended them to live, that God created them to live. So Paul wraps it up like this in Romans chapter 3. Here's what he says. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, he says, as Jews? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Then Paul quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and mercy marks their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, if you read everything else that Paul says about humanity, you realize this passage does not mean that humans never do anything whatsoever good or right, although it sounds that way. If that were what he meant, he would be contradicting himself because even just one chapter earlier in Romans 2, he said that human beings sometimes do what is right. It's innate to them. What he is saying is that there is nothing we do that is not tainted by sin. Nothing. And when we do good and when we do what's right, yeah, it's God's image that is popping through the muck and mire of sin. Although we suppress the truth by what uh, theologians call the co common grace of God, uh, a grace that he expresses to all humanity, because of that, his image doesn't disappear entirely. This isn't a saving grace, but a common grace. So the story so far. Humanity has proved unwilling and incapable of living rightly. So God promises to rescue humanity through one man and his descendants, but they failed. Next, God in his rightness or righteousness is just. He's a God of pure justice. And therefore, he hates humanity's unrighteousness. 
and he brings judgment down on us. That's what Paul means when he says that after we suppress the truth in order to do evil, God expresses his wrath, anger, judgment. He expresses that on us by letting us have what we want. That was week three of this series, three times in chapter one. Paul says, God gave us over to our sins. That was an act of judgment. He gave us what we wanted, and we have the results in this world that we live in. So how can God keep his promise of redeeming humanity and making us right without violating his own rightness, his justice? This is a huge dilemma from a human standpoint and from a theological standpoint. Of course, it's not a huge dilemma for God, but it explains why Jesus had to die. Look at how Paul states uh, the problem in chapter 3, uh, verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What God did is something we're going to come back to in just a moment, what he did. But note what doing what he did accomplished. What did it accomplish? Um, what he did made it possible for God to be both just and the one who justifies, the one who makes others right. Again, look at verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as not so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What God did made it possible for him to keep his promise to rescue humanity without violating his perfect justice. Why is this so important? Well, on the most basic level, it's just what had to be because God would not go against his own nature, his rightness, his justice. But here's why it's so important for us, for, for us to know why. We need to know that God is a good God, a God who is not just and fair and angry about evil would not be a good God. But why is it important to God to show us he is good? Well, notice what it says in verse 25 and 26. Twice it says God did what, it, what he did in order to demonstrate his rightness, to demonstrate it. And so it says in Romans 3.25, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. And then in 3.26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. But why is it important uh, to God to show us, to demonstrate that he is good and right and just? Well, the first part of that answer is really in this passage, and we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks in some detail. But I'm just going to give you a, a sneak peek by asking a question. Would you trust a God who is neither right, nor good, nor just? Would you trust that God? Trust, which is faith, is what he wants us to do. It's all over the passage. The second answer is found in the Torah, the law of God. It's the most important command of all. So Jesus would have grown up praying its words literally every day of his life, just like any devout Jew of his time and even stretching into today. It comes, it's a prayer that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the first part of what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. It says this, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strengths. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. God didn't make us to simply do what he says to do. He made us to love and to do what he says out of that love. So the answer to his question uh, is really important for our relationship with God. How can God keep his promise of redeeming humanity and making us right without violating his own rightness or justice? The cross is God's answer and was his plan all along. Look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 21 marks a huge turn in Paul's argument uh, with those words, but now. They are a very strong transition, but now. Now, here's how a couple of people speak of its importance. There are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's N.T. Wright. There are many plays and movies which turn, often at the last minute, on a sudden intervention. Someone arrives, perhaps galloping in on horseback into a trial or a wedding or a lynching, bringing news of a reprieve or a message from a former lover or whatever. Just when we thought the action was taking its course, something new has happened which changes everything. That is the mood Paul creates with his dramatic, but now. Apart from the law, the very next words, that means apart from the whole covenant God had with his people Israel. But he says it's exactly what the law and the prophets, the whole of the Bible, had been pointing to all along. Do you see that move? He's saying the whole covenant built around law-keeping was never really going to cut it. It had always pointed to something, or we know someone else. What did the Bible always point to? He says, what did it testify to? He says the Bible pointed to Jesus Christ. That's what it testified to, to how we can be made right through the redemption Christ made possible by his atoning death on the cross. Look at Romans 3.22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a review and a summary of 118 through 320, but then he goes on. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement though, uh, through the shedding of his blood. Jesus talked about what he came to do in similar terms as what Paul is talking about when he says that Christ's saving work um, and, 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 uh, is, had been part of his plan all along. So here's what Jesus says in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his ransom for many. The ransom part is part of what the redemption theme is about that Paul talks about. In John 5, 39, 
You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Matthew chapter 26, at the Lord's Supper, it says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He did this as he was holding the cup of the Passover meal. And in Luke 24, it says, He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Going back to what Paul says in verse 21, and then what follows, Paul is saying that the Bible always pointed to several things. It pointed to justification by God's grace, justified freely by his grace. It pointed to redemption in Christ, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And it pointed to the substitutionary atonement through the sacrificial death of Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Okay. So it's at this point in my sermon preparation that I had to decide to try to cover those three little things that were just mentioned in the closing minutes of the sermon, or I'd have to make this into a two-parter and cover them next week. Drum roll, please. We will cover them next week. But before we go uh, this week, let's look at the story that Paul weaves so far. Let's, let's just look at it again. Let's pull it together. We proved unwilling and incapable of living rightly. So God promised to rescue us through one man and his descendants, but they failed. God is righteous and he's just, and therefore he hates humanity's unrighteousness. And he rightly judges and condemns us for the evil we perpetrate. So how can God keep his promise of redeeming us, rescuing us, and making us right without violating his own justice, his own righteousness? The answer to that question is the cross. And Paul says the cross was always his plan. Just like Jesus said, it was always his plan all along. Jesus would die in our place. God went to the cross to absorb his own wrath against sin. Our, and our response is to put faith in him, to trust him. Paul is gonna spend more than an entire chapter on faith and its ramifications, but it's all over. Faith is all over our passage. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus. Again in 22, this righteousness is given to all who believe. Same word, faith and belief. Verse 25, God preserved Christ as a, or presented Christ as a sacrifice to be received by faith. Verse 26, the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Have you received what God has done in Christ for you by faith? It takes only one step to get back to God. Will you take that step today? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have made it possible through your own sacrificial death for us to be made right with you simply by putting our faith in you. Father, I pray that you would awaken faith in anyone who has yet to put their faith in what you have done through Jesus Christ, to put their faith in you, understanding what you've done, asking you to be their Savior, and with that, asking you to be their King, their leader, their Lord. Father, I pray that all of us who have put our faith in you would live by faith. You've called us to live by faith to express ourselves out of that faith, to trust you uh, and the way that you have shown us to trust you living by faith every single day. So strengthen our faith. Help us to put our faith in you, not in ourselves, but completely in you and to look to you and to look to your power and receive your power for living for you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.